reading God's Word for us. Okay, I don't think I have ever enjoyed a sermon series as much as I have this one on parables of the kingdom. Part of it is because it's so interesting. But part of it is because of the metaphors that are used, it's enabling me to connect with my childhood. And there's probably a couple other reasons for that, is that I spent, I was at four weeks in Maine this week, which I really consider home away from home. Had the best time we ever had. And saw lots of people from my childhood that I hadn't seen for years. It just brought back a lot of memories. And then maybe it's this. I have a birthday this week, and the number begins with six. And the calendar doesn't lie. At least it's one six and not three. That could be worse, I guess, right? (laughs) But it's hard to believe how fast goes. So there's just a lot of reflection that you do. And I've had so much fun just telling you about my childhood in Maine. And I've got more of it because in the parables of the kingdom, the metaphors are agriculture and fishing. Those are the things I grew up with. My dad was in agriculture, and I went fish fishing and lobster fishing in Maine. So I'm all about this. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more as we get into the parable of the dragnet. And so let's see me just introduce it. And we'll talk about the main point of the parable and then just a couple of implications. Is that I, what happened is my parents were immigrated from Vancouver, Canada. We began in Philadelphia and then eventually they moved to Maine. And really I consider that more home away from home because that's my my kids' remembrance of them. And I spent my entire summers there. We did lots of fish fishing, and we did lots of lobster fishing, and those are two different things. So I'm going to tell you everything I know about fishing. First, the lobster fishing, because I worked with a lobster fisherman, and I was what's called a sternman. That's a guy who stays in the back of the boat and helps the lobsterman pull up his traps. Now, back when we did it, they were traps that were actually made of wooden slats. And they would put weights in it, and those traps, the water had to get waterlogged, or else they'd float, and they eventually did. Over time, the technology got better, and the traps became wire mesh. But they would put them down in a rope, on a rope, two fathoms, three fathoms, 20 fathoms, just depending. Then they would have a buoy on the top. Every lobster fisherman had a different color or combination of colors to show which one was his. So we would get up. Oh, you got up at four in the morning. I don't know anyone who works harder than lobster fishermen. It's really hard work. You've got your $50,000 boat and you go out, and you go out, a week. you could haul up 200 traps a day in a long, long day starting at 4 in the morning. And what would happen is that the trap would be down on the bottom of the ocean, and all kinds of critters would go into it. Lobster, crab, eel, 
eels flounder. Sometimes you'd get a fish. A lot of sea urchins. They're little spiny, prickly balls like chestnuts. Just all kinds of things. So we would pull them up, and right then and there, we would sort them. A lobster has to be a certain size. If it's too small, you have to throw it back, because if you take the small ones, you're going to fish it out, and you won't have any babies who grow up. And amazingly, Americans, they've just fished out everything. There's not that many fish left. But they've preserved the lobster population by just saying you can't take the little ones and you can't take the mothers that have all the eggs. You take a certain size. And lobstermen cheat sometimes. They'll try to sneak through a small one, and I know some have gotten caught and paid big fines. But you sort everything out, and you throw them back, and you put the good things in a bag. Or, or a bucket to take in, and you weigh them, and you pay, and you get paid for them. Maybe two or three dollars a pound. It's up to like seven or oh, they're just freaking out because lobster costs ten dollars a pound these days, and that just is insanely high for them. But it's it, it used to be maybe two or three. Now the other thing I would do is that with my brother, and you, I think you're getting the picture that I'm a youngest child, so I was the tag-along little brother. My sisters were older, my brother was older, my friends were older, so I was always the tag-along little brother, so I always felt left out, but my, at least my brother paid attention to me. We would go fishing together. He's seven years old, older than me. We would go over to the sandy beach around the corner. We would dig clams for bait. Then we would go out on our boat, and we would go fishing. We would put a line down. We didn't use a dragnet. We would use a line, but it's a similar thing. And we would catch all kinds of fish. Mackerel, you could eat. Pollock were kind of oily. Eh, you didn't want to eat them. My favorite thing to catch was a dogfish. You know what a dogfish is? It's a two-and-a-half-foot shark. Some people eat them, but they're really tough, and they would put up a fight. Oh, you, if you go over the sand, you could catch a flounder, which is this big flat thing that looks like a ray. That tasted pretty good. But then this one fish that we would catch was called a sculpin. I don't even know how to describe this except to say it's a combination of a big mouth eel, a Komodo dragon, and a porcupine. I just don't even know. Its mouth was as big as its body. Any fish that ate it, it was like eating a ball of needle. So you couldn't eat it. And I'm thinking, what in the world is this fish here to do except to look ugly? I mean, it has no other purpose at all. It's the, you should look it up on the Internet, the sculpin, the big mouth sculpin. I mean, it was, if you touched it, you'd get poked with a needle. But we would keep some fish, and we would throw them back. Some fish were better than others, and we would sort them out. You with me? So now we go to, to a dragnet. This was what the, what the commercial fishermen would use. They would have these big boats. They were fishing trawlers, and they would literally use a dragnet. Now, what that looks like is that it's basically a big rectangular net it's like a wall of netting that you put down into the ocean. 
you have weights at the bottom and floats at the top, and you just drag it along. You get the idea, and you're hoping to ensnare a school of fish. And you could come up with quite a few if there was a school of fish, if you had fisherman's luck, and the fish would bite it. The main things they were getting around where we lived were herring. They would go to the fishery, and my, my sister Ruth actually worked in one of these factories. You would take the fish about this big. You would take a pair of scissors, scissors. You would cut off the heads and the tail, and the body went in a can, and they were turned into sardines. Anyone here like sardines? Oh, I hate them. My dad loved them. He ate this this fish called kippers. They were salted, smoked sardines. It was awful, but he loved them. And my sister had to work in this plant, cutting off the heads and tails of fish all day. Now, to come full circle, the lobstermen would take those heads and tails and use them as bait to put in the lobster trap. I had to use it until I literally stunk like fish all summer. You literally could not get the smell off. But that's what we did. That was fishing. And so it's just the whole idea that whether you're lobster fishing, whether you're fishing with a line, or using a dragnet, you're catching all kinds of fish. Some you keep, some you don't. The sculpins, the, the, there aren't any big sharks up there, or at least not now, the dogfish, the sculpins. You throw them back when the dragnet gets brought in. But the haddock, the codfish, the flounder, they're really good to eat. You would keep them. While they're in the net, you can't really tell them apart. But you bring them in, you sort them out, you throw the bad ones out, and you keep the good ones. You got the idea? I spent my whole childhood doing this, or watching other people do it. And so that's why I love Jesus says, this metaphor, this parable, this picture, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like fishing. It's like a dragnet. It's like a net that was let down into the lake, and it caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it on the shore, and then they sat down, and they collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Many of the people of that time were fishermen. Several of the early disciples were. Peter and James were. Peter was a fisherman. They made their living fishing in the Sea of Galilee. There were some... 20 different kinds of fish there. Some you could eat, so they would take them, they would sell them, take a profit. Others you couldn't eat. I don't know if they, I don't think they had sculpin because sculpin was a saltwater fish, but they probably had something like it that you just couldn't eat. They would gather them up in a net, and they would all be there together. They'd drag them ashore, put them, and then right there they would sort them out, and then the, one, the good ones they would keep, the ones you could eat, they would sell them, and that's what they would use to live. So, but while they're in the net, you don't quite sure what you have. They're sorted out afterwards. It's very similar to the, to the parable that Jesus gave 
of the wheat and the weeds. In the field, they all grow up together, and you can't tell them apart until the end they get sorted out. So it's the same idea. But the par- I love this, the parable of the dragnet. What does it mean? It's like the kingdom of heaven. Well, the main point is simply this, is that it is Jesus who is gathering his people into his kingdom. Get used to this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, because in the New Testament, it is contrasted with the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdoms of this earth are what Caesar Caesar ruled. They were secular republics, like the Republic of Rome or Greece, like the secular republic of America or China or whatever. Those are the kingdoms of this world that have rulers who God has appointed, but they're not anything about accomplishing His purposes. They keep order and do all kinds of good things, but they are not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the reign and rule of Jesus, the heavenly sovereign Christ, who, through the gospel, is drawing people of all the nations into his kingdom. And you see why it's beautiful? It's like he's the master fisherman gathering his people into the net that represents the kingdom of God. And the kingdom really represents the church and the visible people of God. And isn't it true that when you look at the church on earth, scattered across this country, you scattered across the world, it's filled with all kinds of fish, isn't it? So what, we should put up a poll, a Twitter poll. What fish is teaching Pastor Bruce McCray? I like a dogfish. Can I have that? <laughs> I'm not very edible. I don't know. <laughs> but there's all kinds of fish in the net. But Jesus is the one gathering his people into the kingdom. And this metaphor gets played out in the, pa- the other passage that was read. It's a very, very familiar passage. Of It's the one, there's a kid's song about it, of Jesus coming to Peter the fisherman and saying, from now on you're going to catch people. But I want to look at this because it's really similar to the parable of the dragnet because here are these fishermen who are experts at catching fish in their nets with their, with their dragnet. But who are the ones getting caught? They are. By Jesus. They are getting drawn into his net. You see, this is interesting because Peter is there. Simon is also his name. And they're fishermen, and Jesus is there teaching. There's a lot of people, so he uses a boat as a pulpit kind of thing, gets out, pushes out from shore a little bit. And the, he says to Peter, put out into deep water and let out your nets for a catch. So here's the non-fisherman telling the fishermen what to do. And I was at a block party, and I was reconnecting with some lobster fishermen that I used to work with years ago. They're about my age or a little bit older. And the technology changes. And they're having a lobster fisherman conversation about, I put out my, my traps in 20, 30 fathom water and all of this gobble, all of this lingo 
and I kind of understand it, but they're the experts. They know exactly what they're doing, and half of the things they're saying is, huh, what are you talking about? I do know what two or three fathoms are, but they're the experts at catching the lobster fisherman. And so here's these experts, and so here comes the non-fisherman along, and he says, you haven't caught anything, put out into deep water. Let out your nets for a catch. And he says, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the net. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that I, I love to fish. I, I, all the fishing I've done has been saltwater fishing. Fishermen, or fisherwomen, have this thing called fisherman's luck. It's kind of used ironically. But everyone is trying to come up with a formula of when are the fish going to be biting and when are they not. Like, if it's a really hot day, we think, oh, they're not going to be biting because it's just too hot. Or this or that, they're just not going to be biting. And you want to know what the answer is? Nobody has any idea on whether the fish are going to be biting or not on a particular day. <laughs> it's pretty random. They're either biting or they're not. Sometimes you can go out all day and get nothing. Sometimes you can go out and get a lot. And my brother and I, we would go out on our boat, and we would literally count the fish and see if we could set a record. And the funniest thing that ever happened was that it was the last day of the summer, the very last day, and so we went out fishing behind the island right in front of our house. And my dad was really compulsive about getting in the car and leaving. I wonder, I, I, gee, the apple didn't fall far from the tree on that one. But he was really compulsive about getting in the car and leaving, and the thing is, he didn't like traffic. So we would literally leave at 8 or 9 at night and drive all night to beat the traffic. It's about 10, it was about a 10-hour drive home. So this one, it was the very last day of the summer, and we still have to put our boat up and put our boat away. We went out on this last day, and we caught an insane number of fish. They just kept biting and biting and biting. And if they're biting, you don't stop. You just stay. You just keep doing it. We were up to 110 fish, which was really a lot. But then we look over, and there's a boat coming toward us, and my dad had sent our neighbors out on our boat to find us and come get us. So we go back, and my dad is so furious. We've got to get out of here. We've got to leave in two hours. What are you doing? But it was just an incredible number of fish, more than we'd ever seen. And... But on any given day, you literally never knew what you were going to get. You might get zero. You might get 110. You might get 20. You might get 30. You just had no idea. But if you go out for three hours and you don't get anything, you know what you say? No luck today. They're not biting. Pack it in. Go home. Try another day. That's what you do. So... Peter, they were fishing all night. They're the experts. Nothing. 
bad luck, as you'd say. So they pack it in, wash the nets, we'll live to fish another day. And that's pretty common. So here comes Jesus, the non-fishing expert, and says, put out your nets for a catch. And you go, what do you know? I mean, we haven't caught anything. Why would we now? What would be different? And Peter, by faith, just says, because you say so, I'll do it. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'll let him out. We'll go out again. And they go out, and they catch, they let the dragnet out, and they catch so many fish, the nets are breaking. There's so many fish, they have to fill up two boats, and the boats start sinking. Now, I've done a lot of fishing. I've never seen this happen. That's a lot of fish. A boat is always... You never catch so many fish that it sinks the boat. But there's so many, they're sinking the boats, they have to come in. But here's the interesting thing about this. Is that in verse 8, I guess most people would say, thanks Jesus for the fishing tip, that's a lot of fish. Good luck. But what does Peter say? Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Isn't that interesting? Peter was confronted with, and he probably had some contact with Jesus before. Probably knew who he was. But Jesus, the non-fisherman, comes along. He says, put out for a deep water. And this man who knows nothing about fishing, supposedly, gives them more fish than they can ever imagine. Peter realizes, I'm the expert. I've been working hard for this all night. I caught nothing. Here's a man, Jesus, who says, let out, and I get more than I could possibly ever work for. And he realizes, I'm confronting the Son of God. Only the Son of God could do this. It just couldn't happen. All of my work, all of my effort at what the thing I'm best at, I get nowhere. And Jesus, the Son of God, comes along and realizes, and he sees this isn't just any human being, this isn't just fisherman's luck, but this is the Son of God providing for me what I couldn't work for. Jesus is gathering Peter into his kingdom. This is probably the time of Peter coming to know Jesus as he came to deep repentance. And it's very, very similar to that passage in Isaiah, isn't it, where Isaiah has that vision of God, this grand vision, this grand, grand vision of the Lord, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah said, he's the prophet. He's the one who speaks. He probably would, could speak and preach very well. And, and the Lord says, the very instrument you use to preach, it is utterly unclean, and I must cleanse it. And Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. You see, that was deep, deep repentance. Because Jesus 
is gathering his people into his kingdom, not by what they do, but by what they can't do. And and the ultimate sign of being gathered in is this, this encounter with Jesus that leads you to deep conviction. I have nothing in my net. I have no worthiness here. But I rest on you, Jesus, to do the work that I can't do. Because you realize, Peter made his living with this. Jesus provided everything miraculously. Did all the work. And Peter just received it. And I mean, I just think this is an amazing, amazing metaphor of we don't enter into the kingdom by our own effort. It is Jesus who gathers us into his kingdom. We are his fish. Whether you're a sculptor or a dogfish, it's all by him calling you. And the thing that's interesting here is that in both of these cases, Isaiah has this grand vision of seeing God. Peter sees this miracle. But you know, for most of us, it's not like that. It doesn't have to be some grand experience you have. Jesus doesn't need to... Many of you may not have some massive conversion experience. Maybe you didn't see a grand vision of God. Maybe you didn't actually see Jesus sink your boat with fish. But it's the same encounter with Jesus, isn't it? See, I grew up in a Scottish Presbyterian home. What choice did I make to be born into that home? Nothing. That was of the Lord. And I don't remember a time that I didn't know the Lord. But I do remember, and it's really cool, with, with the Internet, you can actually get the date. On April 7th, 1977, 3-7, it was a Monday, Thursday night. I was in my 10th grade year. I remember at the communion service, at the Lord's table, just feeling a deep sense of conviction of my sins, but an assurance that as I met Christ and, and the Word in the table, that I truly belonged to Him. Very, very quiet. And I knew I was in Jesus' kingdom, but it was this encounter with Jesus. He was drawing me in. And you know, Katie McRae has a very different experience. She grew up in a completely secular home. A lapsed Catholic mother, a father who'd been in a Presbyterian church, but he was very secular. And when you grow up in a home like that, where there's no religion at all, what are the chances of you coming to know Christ? Are you going to find, are you going to hear that faith in your home? No. Absolutely not, because there wasn't any faith in the home. But she had gone to the Roman Catholic Church and had a, a sense of God, because in the Roman Catholic Church, you truly do get a sense of the majesty of God and how much you don't measure up. The problem is you don't get any insurance. So she did the penance and the works and the, and the Hail Marys and all that, but it was just going nowhere. And then she can remember the day, and I'm going to get this right because I asked her, August 17, 1978 at 11.34 p.m. in a pizza hut in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Her nickname was Crafty Katie because she worked in a craft shop. She can do anything craft-wise, so if you need anything showed up, she can do it. 
but she, in a very quiet way, came to know Jesus Christ, that all of her penance and all of her performance wasn't earning the favor of the God she knew was there. And she came to faith, and immediately she met Christians, and she went off to college and got involved in a Christian group. But how much choice, how much effort did she put into getting drawn into the net? It's not nearly as likely, having grown up in a home, I wouldn't call it anti-Christian, but in some ways it was, because her father just thought the whole thing was kind of ridiculous, her mother was disillusioned. But in spite of being in a home where there was no gospel at all, Jesus drew her into his net. He's going to touch his people. There wasn't a grand vision. It was a quiet meal at a pizza hut in 1978. And it was interesting. Remember um, Garrett Moore, who preached here a couple of weeks ago? I was talking to him. Now, I don't think his wife could be. His wife is Allie, and her name is Allie Epstein Moore. And I said, does she have Jewish heritage? He said, she does. Her father grew up as a Jewish man and came to Christ when she was in elementary school. Now, that's an interesting story because, remember, Jewish people are reading the Old Testament Scriptures. What do all the Old Testament Scriptures point to? Jesus. And Jesus is drawing his people into his net by that is the kingdom. Is that we don't work our way into it. All of us have a different story. It doesn't require a grand, grand experience. But it is simply an encounter with the risen God who is seeking us out as the master fisherman puts out his net, gathers us in. And in this world, there's a lot of people, a lot of rich, a lot of, lots of people in lots of churches. Has everyone truly had that encounter with Jesus? Maybe not. But you don't know until the end. But, and I'm going to finish with this. And um, I'm simply going to say that if you're in Christ today, it is because Jesus has drawn you into his kingdom. And this doesn't mean you don't do anything, but you are pressing on, as Paul said, to take hold of that for which Jesus has already taken hold of you. And when we come to Jesus in his word and at the table, we are encountering the risen Christ who is spiritually present with us, the master fisherman. And as we come to the table, the, the constant cry of our heart is, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful person. But at the same time, we say, Lord, thank you for providing everything for me that I couldn't work for for myself. My daily bread, my salvation, that you have drawn me into your net. So as you live, don't live with fear, but live with the other certainty. Jesus has drawn you into his net. And as his under-fishermen, under-fisherwomen, as it were, 
have those gospel conversations as he's commissioned you to tent people. It is not your job to save them. It is simply your job to point to Jesus. And that's the fisherman who's ultimately the one who draws them in. Amen? Please join.